Hi, I'm Deb Crow, and welcome to season two of the Heart Centered Leadership Podcast. This is a podcast where we connect, learn, and laugh together with strong leaders from all over the globe. Here, you will learn from peers you haven't even met yet. You will gain new tools to add to your leadership toolbox. Because whether you're a C-suite executive or a first-time entrepreneur, we all contend with challenges and there's always room for improvement if we choose to seek it. So please pull up a chair and listen in. This is the Heart-Centered Leadership Podcast. Welcome back to Imperfect, the Heart-Centered Leadership Podcast. I'm really excited to introduce Beatrice Chestnut to you today. I found her on LinkedIn and she did a post one day and I fell down the rabbit hole and I was just so intrigued with who she is as a woman, who she is as a leader, the schooling she's done, her trajectory to her PhD, her love and passion for teaching and coaching and mentoring and consulting. Beatrice is one of the most authoritative voices and thought leaders in the modern Enneagram movement. And I wanted to have her on the show because I've yet to interview a leader with this modality. I want to highlight the studying she's done and the work that she's done for 27 years and just hear a little bit about her story. She's a licensed psychotherapist. She's a coach. She's a business consultant. And she has her PhD in communication and her master's in clinical psychology. So Beatrice, I am so delighted to welcome you to the show. Thank you, Deb. It's it's really good to be here with you. I, I got goosebumps already. I haven't even started the questions. <laughs> Enneagrams. Let's talk about this from a leadership perspective. I'm, I'm going to jump right in here. I am such a lover of neuroscience. I love everything cognition, emotional. I love how it goes together, how sometimes it's on opposite parallels. Share with us how you've taken the craft of your academic trajectory and your work experience. And I'm even going to say your life experience on how you've used this beautiful modality within leadership. Sure. So I I started off my career as an academic. I have a PhD in communication, which for me means my area of research was mass media and politics. And so I'm deeply interested in current events, politics, and how our modern world, and especially the ways of communicating, have influenced almost everything in our world when it comes to politics. And interestingly, I got a little diverted from that in 1990, over 30 years ago, when um, just being at a friend's house, his father, who was a psychiatrist at Stanford, was talking about his work with the Enneagram. And it was sort of a surprising thing for someone who is a Stanford-based psychiatrist, very mainstream authority on psychology, to get interested in something like the Enneagram at that time, especially because this was you know, the late 80s, early 90s. And he had partnered with Helen Palmer, who was one of the first people to write a, a popular book about the Enneagram. And basically the Enneagram is, no one really knows exactly where it comes from, although I'm working on that. It comes from ancient wisdom and it's, it's many things, but it's mainly a typology uh, that describes nine different interconnected personality types. But through learning about your type, you can access a lot of information about unconscious habitual patterns and things like that. So of course the Enneagram, knowing about the Enneagram has many applications. And I started off, I actually kind of re rerouted my career after I learned the Enneagram because I was so blown away by it, mainly by its depth and accuracy 
when describing these personalities. So when I read about my type, I was amazed because I had never really been that interested in psychology, although I was very interested in people. And I for sure hadn't thought there was anything deep or meaningful in personality typologies, but I do think the Enneagram is really different. When I read about my own type, it was shocking to me because here was something that was describing so many things that I knew to be true about myself And also things I barely wanted to admit that I also saw were true about me that really opened my mind to what was possible in terms of learning about myself in a way that I could raise my level of awareness and eventually sort of everything else, the happiness, satisfaction in life. So I actually went back to school and became a psychotherapist. Um, And so I knew the Enneagram. The Enneagram in my mind was almost like a grand theory of psychology and even the human development that everything I learned about psychology in school could kind of map onto the Enneagram. I could see parallels and correspondences. And it's like the Enneagram made sense of the world of, of psychology. But when it comes to leadership, soon after I finished my therapeutic training, I also got interested in group work. And I happened to go to the Stanford Business School's group facilitation training program. And what happened there was amazing, too, because it was a group process uh, that was very oriented toward basically helping business students learn about themselves at a deeper level through sharing in a group where there was no agenda, no leader and no task. And what ended up happening is sort of everybody's kind of true self ended up coming out. And basically what people learn in those groups is people don't like them because of their resume, which is what they think everyone will admire about them. What they actually like is when they kind of get the resume out of the way and they show who they are as a real person or a heart-centered leader, you might say. So I got really interested in helping business people get more in touch with their emotional intelligence. And also, and that kind of, I sort of started on a trajectory in in addition to doing psychotherapy, doing coaching and leadership development and team development. Although for me, that always has included the Enneagram because the Enneagram is such a powerful tool for helping people understand themselves with a lot of depth and accuracy and therefore efficiency. And when you talk about neuroscience and emotions, just I'll just say one more thing and then I'll let you get a word in here. Um, One more thing is the Enneagram is based on a model that talks about how we all have three centers of intelligence that all kind of interact with each other, but they're all really important to understand. um, And that is the head level, the sort of head analyzes, the mental level is about planning, analysis, The heart level, which is about feeling emotions and connecting to others through emotions and compassion and things like that. And then the body level, that's about kind of a gut knowing or instinctual intelligence that sees the body as also a center of intelligence that processes. And of course, you may know that we have now since then they've found that we have neural cells in our heart and our body in addition to our brain. So that's also, there are many powerful growth uh, oriented dimensions of the Enneagram model, but that's, that's one of them as well, is that we have these three centers. There are three types that are focused that sort of overuse or live more from the head. There are three types that overuse or live more from the heart just naturally. And then three types that live more from the body. It's so interesting because we talk about having that head, heart, gut alignment. And, you know, leaders have questioned that gut reaction, that gut thought, that gut instinct. And in leadership, you know, they coin it with the term intuition management. And that farthest distance is is the beginning and getting that head and heart to be aligned. I'm going to ask a question because I know it would probably be one from our wide listenership. 
I remember doing this and I think I was in my late 30s, maybe early 40s. As you continue to grow your skill Mm. and let's say you may have an innate talent, can this change as you grow, mature, extend your education, maybe tap into more of that self-awareness as you mature and let go of fear? Does that change the outcome of your Enneagram? The short answer is no. (laughs) However, the Enneagram is all about growth and development. So it's more the idea that we grow within our type than that we change types. And the foundation of heart-centered leadership, in my humble evolving opinion, is when you've mastered and honed self-awareness, it just becomes innate and organic. So, so interesting. I love it. Okay, my second question, my real second question, because I slipped a 1A in there on you. This has permanent residency on the show, and I've asked 167 leaders this question. It's never been duplicated by anybody. What imperfections does Beatrice bring to her heart-centered leadership? (laughs) That's a great question. There are many I could list. So I think one of them is being, at times, overly heart-centered because I am a heart type in the Enneagram. I'm a type two. And so I would say in a way that I didn't see clearly before I knew my Enneagram type, um, I can be overly emotional. I can come too much from my emotions and not realize it. So for instance, I can think I'm being objective, thinking about something objectively, meaning not flavored with emotion, but I'm actually thinking with my emotions. Right. And so that's one of the dangers of heart types, just like head types can actually think they're having an emotion when they're actually thinking about an emotion. It's very interesting. Um, So I would say that's one thing is sometimes I don't realize when my emotions creep in or sometimes I can be acting from an emotion that I'm not fully owning, which can, you know, make my communication, let's say, less clear or more biased in ways that I don't understand. And I, I, and then the more I think about it, the more I think that's a really, it's a really big one. I think sometimes um, a big goal for me, partly because it's connected to my, the high side of my Enneagram type being a two is humility. One of my favorite books about leadership was Good to Great. I love the big insight of that book is that the leaders that made the companies are truly great. One of the reasons why they found that to happen as opposed to a company that just stays at the good level was humble leadership. So I think while I'm always aspiring to be really humble in everything I do, sometimes I notice, and often it comes out of maybe an, again, over-emotional passion for what I do. I can kind of want to be right, or I can be, feel a little competitive with people. And I think, again, when that happens, I kind of lose my center a little bit. So I try to be really, really aware of that, like thinking I, I, I'm the owner of the truth, or I know the best way, or, or I'm better than my approach is better than someone else's. I would say those are the, probably two of the more main things that I notice in myself, although <laughs> there's a lot of imperfection there. That question is always prefaced by Deb. How much time do we have? Or there's so many. Do you want me to narrow it down? (laughs) No, but I, I love the authenticity and the vulnerability of your answer. And what I love the most is how you frame the difference between our emotional mind and our logic mind. And sometimes how we think we're, we're acting or behaving or responding, but we're really not. And having you say that, I think brings a lot of merit and a lot of context. I love it. Okay, third question. 
You've done some consulting and coaching, which is amazing with this tool. Share with us how you've seen the benefit of this in teams, especially as we're navigating, I'm going to call it the tsunami. We're not even going to say the P word or the C word. And as we're back and forth, and again, it's global dependent on location, it's sector dependent, but those teams, and and again, feel free to speak from any level that you choose, the back and forth with the hybrid, just give us a little glimpse into that from your perspective. Yeah, I think even before the last two years, a lot of what I was reading about teamwork and and things like that, or even just the nature of business in in our world is that collaboration was huge, that people were going to need to learn to collaborate more and especially across distance. I use the, the Enneagram a lot with teams and I think it really helps them mainly in a couple of ways. One is the emphasis on self-awareness and empathy for others. The way it helps them, again, in a quick and efficient way, get to know themselves better, get to understand other people and how different people have completely different perspectives and kind of get to know what those are and how it gives them a neutral language for talking about points of difference and communicating about, you know, whether it's potential conflicts or just the work they're doing together. And it gives them a language that talks about them as having particular filters on the world, work preferences, styles of communicating, et cetera, that don't raise defensiveness or judgment. Now you have to, as a practitioner, you have to always be teaching the ethics part of it at the same time about this is not about using your Enneagram type as an excuse or using it against others as a weapon or a way to stereotype or or limit people. Rather, it's a way of sharing, again, in a relatively efficient way, here's my worldview. Here's how I tend to see things. Here's what I tend to focus my attention on. Here are some of my natural strengths. Here are some areas of challenge for me. And because it, it's associated with these nine types that are, aren't good or bad, you know, they're all equal in terms of natural strengths and, and areas of challenge. And especially because it shows how when we overuse the specific strengths associated with our type, they turn into liabilities. And so there's an emphasis on growth in terms of recognizing what you do well, but also realizing that you tend to look at 360 degrees of reality through this relatively narrow slice because it's what you've always done and your habits and patterns become so familiar and comfortable that you don't even see that they're there. You're not even seeing that actually your personality, in in addition to helping you function in the world, also is self-limiting. And so it's both at the same time, a way of saying, well, if I'm working with you, well, here's the way I tend to see things and here's what can be hard for me. And here's what I'm still trying to develop. And then other people are saying that to you. So when team members come together and share more about themselves, they get to know each other better. They get to appreciate each other better. They understand that when they get into conflict or even when they're just seeing something really differently and having a hard time getting on the same page. There's a good reason for that. And if they can talk about what the reason is just based on, you know, how they focus their attention and what they view as more and less important, none of it's right or wrong or good or bad. It just is what it is. And the main thing is to be aware of it. It really helps heal relationships on teams, improve relationships and help people work together more seamlessly because they're able to communicate at a deeper level just about who they are and how they operate in a way with, again, without judgment with that, in a way that doesn't raise defensiveness, which, you know, separates people rather than brings them together. 
And I, I also think that's been a blessing of the unprecedented times we've had. And I would see the benefit of how powerful this would be for an executive to have an overview of their team. And like you said, the, the flexibility of come sit in the observer's chair, let's take an intrinsic approach. It's not a barrier. It's not a fence. We're not on different sides. It's seeing life and a situation or a task through someone else's vantage point, which to me is heart-centered leadership. Yeah, exactly. It really emphasizes having empathy for other people and having a lot of understanding when people are just really different from you. And without a tool like the Enneagram, when someone's doing something that you can't imagine doing, you think what's wrong with that person, you know, just because, you know, I I can't imagine why you would say that or why you would do that or why you would approach this work task in the way you did. But then when you can understand what their personality type is all about and how they just focus on something completely different than you do. And it's like, oh, I get it, you know, and then it becomes both less mysterious and also you develop more understanding and compassion. Now, one of the things that I think is really great about what's happening now is that more and more people in business and more and more leaders are wanting to use the Enneagram with their teams. Now, it might not be for every team, but one of the things that I think leaders are recognizing is when people can allow themselves to be a little vulnerable, when they can share more about themselves with their teammates, that creates for a great working relationship. It used to be that you're not supposed to be vulnerable at work. You're not supposed to express emotions at work. And so it it limits what you're able to do together. Now, it doesn't mean you have to share everything with your teammates, but if you're willing to allow yourself to be more vulnerable, that's a really huge thing. I remember when I was at Stanford Business School, the leadership experts there used to say, one mark of a great leader is the ability to selectively self-disclose vulnerability, right? And so one of the things that happens with leaders that bring it in with their team is on the one hand, like you said, they love seeing the team map. Once everyone understands what the Enneagram types are, and then they see a map of like the 12 people on their team and what types they have and what types they don't have, you can understand a lot about what's going on there. But you also get to know people and get to appreciate people. Because I think anytime somebody is willing to share more more depth about themselves, more vulnerability, it almost always leads to more appreciation of one kind or another. It's the premise of this whole show. We are all imperfect. And you can be imperfect and you can be a heart-centered leader. We can do hard things. We can say hard things and we can do it with love. We can lead with love. There's a place for love and business acumen. It doesn't have to be this rigid concrete wall of resistance sitting on our chests. And I think humility has really floated to the surface as we lean in and observe and support one another on a global level especially now, in addition to everything else, right? Now, my fourth question, I'm sneaking it in because when I was doing my last little bit of research on you, you are doing something amazing this summer in Italy, and I'm seriously thinking about going. So when you can combine ancient wisdom, I'm a yoga teacher, so that just makes, you know, the science of my mind go, oh my gosh, and we're going to, we're going to add in some fun time and unstructured time and personality topography and the depth and accuracy of everything we spoke about. Share with us what you are doing in Italy. I think it's in, is it July? It's in June. June. Yeah. Yeah. Early June in Florence, Italy. 
This will be about the fifth or sixth year that I've done this, although we skipped the last two years. So uh, I got really interested in the ancient roots of the Enneagram. One of the great masterpieces of Western literature I looked at um, with the Enneagram in mind was Dante's Divine Comedy. And I thought, you know, he must have had to know something like the Enneagram because uh, it's in there in so many ways. And so I did a deep study of the Enneagram. My first, uh, as an undergraduate, I was an English literature major. So that readied me for that task. But I analyzed the Divine Comedy with an eye toward, you know, what connection does it have to the Enneagram? And I found a lot. And I, I did it first as a conference presentation at a conference. And then I did it at a group of um, business consultants that use the Enneagram in Europe. And when I did it there, one of the members of the group stood up and said, we should do this in Italy. So it became a three-day workshop in Italy and Florence. And now it's a four-day and so it's basically a combination of exploring these connections uh, between the Enneagram and the wisdom of the Divine Comedy and walking around Florence and learning about Dante and learning about the culture of Florence when he was alive and all of the cultural uh, context around the writing of the Divine Comedy and, and Dante's life. So it's really, really fun because we're not in the classroom all day. We're, we're in this amazing room in this, this old convent. And then part of the day we're there doing this interesting study. And of course, bringing our own study of ourselves into it. And then the other parts of the day were on guided tours and going to museums and, and churches and seeing all of what's there to take in. Well, it sounds wonderful. I haven't been to Italy in, I think, 11 years. So I, I'm definitely intrigued and the program looks wonderful. And, and I'm going to make sure we put the, uh, the details in the podcast episode description so everybody can see it. Okay, I'm going to switch to my fun fab four. These are just four fun questions. We want to see what's sitting on the top of that brilliant mind of yours. First question, tell us something that we don't know about Beatrice. Hmm, it's funny. The first thing that always pops into my mind is um, as I was an athlete when I was younger. And one sport I played that not everyone plays very often is badminton. <laughs> My dad growing up was a big badminton player. And of course he would bring me and my brother along with him. And so we would play together on a side court while he was doing his thing. Um, so strangely, I learned to be a very good badminton player by high school. And I was even plucked out of my physical education class to be on the varsity badminton team. So that's one thing. And maybe that's it. Maybe these days, you know, I, and I love sports. I love baseball in the US. I love international soccer. I think maybe that's something people don't know about me is how sports oriented I am. I'm a runner. I wish I had kept up. I played softball and soccer in addition to badminton as a kid. Softball was my main sport. I love that. Share with us, second question, a book that was really life-changing for you. What's the title of the book and the author and how did it change you? How did it pivot you? I'm not exactly um, in favor of this writer and her politics, but The Fountainhead by Ayn Rand, I think because as a type two, my outlook on the world is, is self-sacrificing to a fault that the message in that book, in addition to being well-written of kind of the fountainhead being about sort of getting in touch with your own talents and even being a bit selfish at the time, that was so radical. And, and for me, I think it helped me kind of pivot 
like, oh, like it's possible to be more of that, you know? And so when you have my personality type, you know, you're never really going to be, I mean, unless you're at a low level of awareness and you're never going to be overly selfish because there's sort of a taboo on selfishness. It also means you tend to not be connected to yourself in a good way. So that was a big one for me. But then I would say the other one is Autobiography of a Yogi by Paramahansa Yogananda, because for many years I was a follower of the Self-Realization Fellowship. And I just love, love, love his writing. Like it doesn't just talk about one religion and this is the this is the only thing to believe. It's a kind of spiritual teaching that's very practical, but also very open. It's, you know, he talks about different religious traditions. And in my recent years, when I've been studying the ancient roots of the Enneagram, part of what's amazing about it is it is there are core truths that are are basically in common with all the world's traditions, like sometimes called the, the perennial philosophy. And I I just love that idea and a lot of the works that come related to that. And Yogananda strikes me as someone who's very much that way. Like he's even written a book about Jesus Christ and and all of the meat, the true meaning of of his teaching. So, um, so I would say that's another one that was really big. Those are two really, really indifferent books. And, and the second one, I'm with you. It, it was part of our yoga teacher training. And the writing is very open and embracing and encompassing. And yeah, it's interesting that I I share that alignment with you. Okay, third question. If you could have dinner with any leader, they could be living or they've passed away, who would it be and why? And what would the dinner conversation be? Again, like with books, it's so hard to think of just one. You know, you know who I like a lot is um, Bill Maher. I'm not sure he qualifies as a leader, although some people may look to him as that. I love his humorous take on politics. Um, I'm kind of a you know political junkie, and so I love his show. But I will have to say, the fact that I know the Enneagram and that to me his type is really clear and he acts it out in very unconscious ways in his show make me want to have dinner with him and talk to him. Now, I wouldn't have any hope of convincing him of anything. Uh, I just think he's a big contrarian. I would love to talk to him about, you know, to see if he would be open to noticing how his personality informs what he does and his perspective on almost everything. And so it's sort of like when you can see uh, someone's personality type and how it's interacting with what they do, it's like you kind of want to help them see it. He seems hard to convince, but I, but I think I would enjoy that. And I just think he's very funny. I think it'd be a good conversation. You've put it out there. So you never know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We might have to send this episode to Bill to listen to and great. say, hey, there's, there's a great conversation awaiting. Before I close out the show with our fourth question, I just wanted you to know it was really lovely to spend time with you and, and showcase the brilliant work that you're doing. And I can see how much you love it. Everybody else doesn't get to see you like I do, but you can hear it in your voice. We'll have them practice empathetic accuracy and have them close their eyes so they can hear how much you love the work that you do. I I appreciate your time and and the grace of you sharing your experience and more importantly, your heart. Thank you. Thank you. So we close out the show. I ask all my guests to finish this sentence for me. Heart-centered leadership is? Being really aware of yourself, your own emotions, your own heart, and being really willing to know the hearts of other people. 
You've been listening to the Heart Centered Leadership Podcast. I'm Deb Crow. If you like what you heard today, please rate and review the show. And I'd love it if you'd visit my website at debcrow.com, where you can sign up for my newsletter and get access to the Heart Centered Leadership Toolkit, all free of charge. Thanks for your time, and we'll see you again.